Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on the Gospel of John. And this time, Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts are going to focus on John 2 and the wedding at Cana. This is the first and beginning of the signs of Jesus where he turns water into wine. And here they'll discuss whether or not the phraseology of Book of Signs is useful when preaching. They'll talk about the sign itself as well as the meaning of the six jars. And they'll also discuss how this is a sign of Jesus and how it is a sign of his glory. A quick reminder that we do have information in the show notes about a couple of events we have coming up. On September 19th, we'll be in Moscow, Idaho at Trinity Reformed Church. On September 28th and 29th, we'll be in Santa Clarita, California, discussing a theology of the sexes. And on December 6th and 7th, we'll be doing a regional course in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on how we should worship. With that, we really hope that you enjoy and are encouraged by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is helping us with the technical side of things and making sure that we continue to record and uh, that we get everything finished up and out to you, our listening audience. A couple weeks ago, we started a series in the Gospel of John. We're focused on the first section of John. We talked about Jesus as the Word, and we talked a, a bit about the distinctiveness of John in the context of the the rest of the Gospels, the other three Gospels. What we want to focus on in this short series, though, uh, is the so-called Book of Signs. There are a number of the two incidents at the early part of uh, John's gospel that are designated as signs. Uh, but then many commentators have suggested that there's a, a longer series of signs that are not uh, designated explicitly as such, but that make up basically the first half of the gospel uh, and uh, can be seen as a, as a unit, as a book of signs. Uh, and Alistair, I, I know that you've been, you've been thinking about that idea a little bit. Yes, uh, you can think about the book of John as structured by these signs. How we number the signs has been debated. So there are debated signs like the sign of the walking on the water. Does that count as the fifth sign or is it something else? Um, There is also the question of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Are those signs to be included? Um, How about the events of John chapter 21? There's clearly a signifying dimension within those events that they look forward to the mission of the church and how it will um, act in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can think about Peter um, and the miraculous catch of fish and then not just the miraculous catch of fish, which maybe draws our attention back to Ezekiel chapter 47, but the fact that Peter powerfully pulls in that whole net full of fish by himself um, and then the other disciples involved with that. But as we look through the signs, they are testifying to who Christ is. When we look at a miracle, miracles will generally have some dimension of validating or testifying or um, symbolizing Christ's identity and mission. Within the signs of John's gospel, that's perhaps even more amplified. As you look through them, you'll see that they express something about who Christ is and what he's doing. 
And those signs are part of the work of John more generally in this very carefully crafted portrait of Christ. Um, the book has been divided by some into the prologue, um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and then the epilogue at the end. And then you have the book of signs and the book of glory in the middle, um, divided between the two. And the book of signs ending with the raising of Lazarus. So the the suggesting suggested ordering that I think we'll probably be following is the first one being the water to wine in chapter two, the child raised from the deathbed in chapter four. That's described as the second sign in verse 54 of chapter four, the healing of the paralytic in Jerusalem, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter six, the crossing of the sea immediately after that, the blind man receiving his sight in chapter nine and Lazarus raised from the dead in chapter 11. So the signs are very important structuring device within the first book of John's gospel. Yeah, and as you said, the the one that the two that are designated explicitly as signs are uh, the winning at Cana and the turning of water into wine in uh, John two eleven, uh, and then in chapter four, uh, those two are called signs. But that commentator suggested that sets up a rhythm or a, a trajectory where you're supposed to see other acts of power as signs. And the terminology we should point out is different in John from the synoptics. Uh, The synoptics generally use dunamis power or act of power to describe these miracles. Uh, John uses simeon, uh, a sign. So it does have a different character, even when it's talking about similar kinds of events. Uh, Jeff, when you've preached on John, have you found this book of signs scheme to be a useful thing to organize your preaching? yeah, yes and no. Uh, once you kind of uh, outline it, then when you get into the paragraph, paragraph by paragraph preaching, uh, you can. it helps you. But oftentimes the, the sign, uh, the miracle, is followed by either lengthy conversations or discourses or uh, events that seem to bring out the meaning of the previous sign. Uh, by the way, I would point out that even in John 6, the multiplication of the bread, Jesus calls that signs. Uh, so it's, there's, uh, I think it's John, somewhere in John 6. Uh, one of the things that is helpful to me in preaching through the Gospels all these years, even though uh, there's a different word used in the synoptics, power, that they're never actually just power uh, events or, or, or expressions of Jesus' power, that could have been done all sorts of ways. He could have levitated people. He could have, you know, done really weird kind of, uh, you know, surprising kind of miracles. But they always have this deeper meaning. But in John, especially, using the word signs uh, indicates that there's John is is interested in. Um, something more systematic, and especially showing how Jesus and what he does fulfills uh, the Old Covenant rituals, the Old Covenant types. For example, the one we're going to deal with today, of course, the purification rites. Um, And when Jesus multiplies the loaves of bread in Acts 6, for example, the people are all fixated on the bread, remember? And Jesus, his power to provide it, so and then then Jesus tells them that they really have not seen the signs plural if that's their fixation. So there's obviously this 
symbolic, typological, allegorical kind of meaning to these miracles, um, which John wants us to see. Yeah, the, the passage you were referring to is John six twenty six. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So yeah, that's a good qualification to what I said earlier. Uh, there are two places where, where John, the author, identifies an event as a sign, but then the, the language of signs is used much more broadly in the gospel. Now you've suggested a parallel between the signs and the days of creation because there are seven signs that in, in the numbering that mentioned so far. Um, how would you correlate those? Well, there's some that would, um, uh, I, haven't, I haven't tried to correlate them, but I, there's some that would um, seem to have a, uh, a, a significant correlation. I mean, the, the seventh would be the raising of Lazarus. So you'd have maybe a sabbatical thing there. Maybe, maybe you have uh, kind of a six day theme overlapping with a sabbatical theme uh, with the, the recreation of a man from the dead. You definitely have kind of sabbatical overtones in uh, the first sign, which is the wedding at Cana. And if you're thinking in terms of the, the creation week as a, as a unit, as a structure, then the first day of the creation week with the creation of light anticipates the final day uh, of the Lord's rest. And so you could find some kind of correlation there. But I haven't, I haven't tried to work out the rest of them to see how they fit together. One thing I've wondered about recently in terms of the relationship between the signs and the days of creation is whether there are two paralleled structures of signs, um, the first three and then the second three, and then you have the, the crowning um, sign, which is very much prominent within the Gospel of John, because in contrast to the other Gospels, it's the death and resurrection of Lazarus that is the precipitating event for the plot to kill Jesus. Jesus lays down his life for his friend. Um, but you have the first sign being watered to wine, Jesus providing wine. And then the fourth sign, Jesus providing bread. Um, the second sign and the fifth sign are both signs done in Capernaum. Um, themes of distance at play there. Um, and then the third and the sixth, the healing of the paralytic man, in Jerusalem, and then the blind man receiving his sight in chapter 9. Those are very strongly paralleled within the literary structure of John. So I wonder if there's that structure going on there that may again connect with the um, creation days. Uh, you, you know that um, Burge, in his commentary, does this with these signs too, and he, he relates them to the institutions of Judaism, the festivals as well. He has an interesting, I think, outline that's helpful. At Burgess commentary in the NIV application commentary uh, is quite good, and I, I would recommend it. Well, our focus of attention in this uh, episode is on uh, John chapter 2, and particularly the first part of that with the wedding at Cana. Uh, that's uh, designated, as we've said, as the first of the beginning of Jesus' signs. Uh, and a uh, couple things just to set this up. Uh, the chapter begins with a reference to a third day. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. That, of course, sets us up for other, or links up, echoes with, resonates with other third day events have, uh, within the Gospels and elsewhere in the Scriptures. But it's also part of a sequence within the first chapter of John. We talked in previous episodes about the 
beginning of the book that uh, alludes back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was the word, everyone notices that. And most commentators also notice that uh, there's a, a sequence of days that begins in 129. Um, I mean, there's, there's, uh, it precedes that because some kind of event is taking place. And then verse 29 says the next day, verse 35 says the next day, verse 43 says the next day, 2-1 says, and on the third day. Uh, so particularly with the beginning that links up with Genesis 1, it's significant that there's a sequence of days, which depending on how you count those up, uh, the third day, which is presumably the third day from the last day mentioned, the third day when the wedding at Cana takes place is the seventh day of the sequence, or by some counting, it's the eighth day. And either one, you have this uh, significant numerology going on. The seventh day would be, of course, a sabbatical theme. Uh, the eighth day is an important theme in John's Gospel uh, because it's on the day after the Sabbath that Jesus rises from the dead, the beginning of a new week, the beginning of a new time. Uh, it's uh, on the eighth day that Jesus appears again to the disciples. So uh, that time reference at the beginning of chapter 2 is setting us up for those um, themes of Sabbath and resurrection. The first sign might also remain, remind us of the first plague. There is the transformation of water into blood at the beginning of the plagues upon Egypt. And here Christ turns water into wine, um, which both contrasts and their similarities as well. Water's association or wine's association with blood is something that we find elsewhere within um, the New Testament particularly. So that is presented as a juxtaposition of the judgment that is brought upon Egypt in the Exodus and then the blessing that Christ is bringing through his mission. Along with that, I think it's significant. It begins with a wedding feast and that theme of the wedding and the bridegroom is pervasive throughout the whole of both John and Revelation. Christ is the bridegroom in Revelation, the bride at the very end being revealed. Um, you have the spirit descending from heaven upon the bridegroom at the very beginning of John and then the bride descending from heaven at the very end of Revelation. Um, the beginning at the wedding feast and then leading towards the encounter with the woman in the garden at the very end after the resurrection. I think those help us to have a clearer sense of why this might be the first sign as well. Why does Christ begin with a wedding feast? Uh, we're told also in verse 1 that uh, the mother of Jesus is at the wedding. And uh, 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 Mary plays a significant role in the story. She's the one who informs Jesus uh, that uh, the wine has come out. And she's the one who passes on uh, to the servants in verse 5 the instruction that they should do what Jesus says. Uh, Max Thurian, in a book on uh, Mary, has a really interesting discussion of this of this chapter and Mary's role in it. And one of the points he makes is the, the, the shift in Mary's status, as it were, Mary's connection with the disciples. At the beginning of the chapter, it's the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. So you have Mary uh, sort of standing on the outside of the group of disciples. And after the episode, verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. So Thurian sees this as a kind of shift from Mary's role as mother to Mary being incorporated in the company of the disciples. Uh, and he also makes a lot of the links between this episode and this scene. 
And the, the other scene where Mary appears in John's Gospel, which is at the foot of the cross, Jesus addresses her as woman there as he does here in this, in this chapter. And there's uh, Thurian plays out a number of the connections between uh, the, two, the two scenes. I, I summarized that, um, that section of Thurian's book on my blog in the past year or two. And uh, I'm sure that Brian Motes is going to look diligently for that, uh, that blog post and link it in the program notes for this episode. Uh, Peter, does he see Mary uh, as representing the role of believing Israel? Um, well, I've, that's the way I've thought about this as I've taught and preached through this. Believing Israel mm-hmm. is, you know, impatient, waiting for the breakthrough of the Messiah and the promised salvation, but has to wait, you know, until the time is fulfilled, the hour's not come. And it's not, you know, it's not in her power uh, or Israel's power to force the messianic time and work. It's God's work. And when he decides to move, then he has to be obeyed. And she does, she does that. She steps aside. Mm-hmm. I've, I've uh, yeah. thought that that's likely. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't, I don't remember that Thurian makes that connection, but that, um, that makes sense, it seems, of uh, some of the terminology. I mean, she's not named here. She's the mother of Jesus the way Jesus addressed her doesn't seem particularly, it doesn't seem like family affection, although addressing your mother as a woman may not be as severe as it sounds to us. Uh, but some of the ways that she's described would um, seem to lend themselves to that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Jeff, you said earlier that this is, um, you were linking this up with um, a purification, which is mentioned in verse 6. What were you thinking with, uh, how is this a, a parabolic event about Jewish purification. Well, there are six stone water jars, which uh, are explicitly linked with the Jewish rites of purification, and they're huge. And uh, they also seem to, since they're stone water jars, have something to do with uh, 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 some kind of humaniform uh, symbolism there. But I think I think basically. What you have here is uh, uh, the purification of the Jews. Is they're, they're great, and the, the water flowed continually in the Old Covenant, but it could never really br- uh, bring lasting happiness and joy. Uh, and what happens is Jesus now goes beyond just the, the water to bring wine, and uh, water will keep you alive, but it won't bring shalom and joy and peace. Water will purify, but it can't glorify. All you need to live is water and bread, technically, but wine brings a fullness to life. Uh, and Jesus, that seems to be part of the sign here, that Jesus is going to supersede uh, all the purification ritual rites of the Old Covenant to bring something much more glorious and significant. I wonder whether we're supposed to connect this with chapter 7 as well. You have a similar introduction there that um, his family going somewhere um, and then Christ asked to reveal his glory in a particular way more publicly. But then there's a he does things secretly instead. When you look at the sign that he performs in chapter 2, it's not one that is generally perceived by everyone who takes place. The master of the feast doesn't know where the wine has come from. The servants do know and the disciples know, and the mother of Jesus knows, but no one else. This is 
a more secret thing that's taking place. And then in chapter 11, there's that, or chapter 7, there's that promise of the gift of living water flowing out. Um, whether there's a connection between that and um, what's described in chapter 2, I wonder, because other features of the text where Christ is invited to do something by his family and then ends up doing it in secret and saying that his time has not yet come, those seem to be similar. And, and I would also say that there's something parallel here in between this and in chapter 4. It seems like everything in chapter 2 through 4 happens in conjunction with Jesus' visit to his first Passover visit. Well, we have a wedding at Canaan with water turned into wine at the beginning of this section. And at the end of this, of the, this first Passover section in chapter 4, you have a woman at a well who wants water, uh, and she uh, uh, has had five husbands, and their sixth one is not her husband, but Jesus comes along and promises to be her Lord and husband. Um, so there are definitely connections between two and four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that just a couple of things in support of the connection you made, Alistair. One would be, I mean, Jeff pointed out that you got uh, these stone water pots, uh, and they, they're large and uh, large enough kind of to be, to represent people, but they're stone. So there's water within the stone that's turned to wine within the stone that's drawn out. So thinking in terms of the Exodus, you not only have a reference, as you said, to the first plague, but you also have an allusion to the water that comes from the rock in uh, various places in Exodus and Numbers. So hmm. um, water's be- not water being drawn from the rock now, but there's wine flowing out, which would connect to the, the image that John 7 uses with the water flowing out from, uh, from, from your belly. The other thing I wanted to highlight was your, the point on the secrecy, I think, is important. Uh, Jim... Uh, Jordan has pointed out that, um, as you said, the the head waiter doesn't know where it comes from. The bridegroom doesn't know where it comes from. The bridegroom ends up getting the credit for bringing out the best wine last. Uh, And instead of intervening and saying, oh, well, guys, that was me, Jesus, uh, (laughs) taking credit for for the sign. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the guy who brings out the best wine at the last. Instead of that, he lets the bridegroom take the take the praise. Uh, so there's a there's an act of humility there that's part of the sign uh, that's would be connected with the secrecy that you mentioned from chapter seven. Some have also suggested that Jesus is doing what would be expected of the bridegroom. Um, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide for the wine, and Jesus, as the true bridegroom, is is doing that. Right, and maybe the the obvious point here too is that uh, this is in fulfillment of this motif of the abundance of wine that occurs regularly in the prophecies of the coming kingdom in in the in the prophets in Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jeremiah. Uh, the coming of uh, the kingdom has to do with a, a wedding meal. Um, you know, it's not like Jesus, you know, turned stones into pastries at a funeral or something he uh it's it's this wedding um and that's obviously significant and needs to be taken into account yeah and i think uh, i mean we could make a make a practical practical application or maybe we could call it a slam against uh, our evangelical brothers who don't use wine 
it's the wine, the glorified water, as you were saying, Jeff, that is the sign of the, the sign of the kingdom. Uh, and the absence of wine uh, in the Lord's Supper is a runs across purposes to the to the significance of the of the supper itself, to the significance mm-hmm. of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention, uh, verse verse ten. This is the praise that the head waiter gives to the bridegroom. Every man serves the good wine first. You, uh, when wine, have, when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you've kept the good wine until now. So you have this paradigm where the the best comes last. The best doesn't come first, but the best comes last. Uh, and that's a John has already made that kind of comment when he's talking about the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. And he compares the word in the flesh to Moses. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. So something better has come. Uh, the old was glorious, but now something better has come. So you've got that that eschatological tilt that's built into this sign. It's it's not just the power of bringing water, uh, bringing wine out of the water, but it's the fact that God is intervening in the last times. He's intervening at the end. Uh, later to give the good wine and to give the joy of the kingdom. The fact that there are six water pots, um, what significance should we be drawing from that? Is it connected with the six disciples? Or is it maybe connected with Jesus' promise of living water to the woman of Samaria who has had five husbands and the one she's now with is not her husband, with Jesus being represented as the seventh coming man? Um, He's the one that is about to come on the scene and Christ is the one who replaces the six water pots with the seventh um, as it were containing wine I, I think it it means absolutely nothing it's just that there were six water pots <laughs> John is just it's telling us reporting what happened um, we need to be very careful not to read any significance of the detail of these stories it seems like in the immediate context the connection would be a I have a vague recollection that there are six named disciples prior to this. Yep. Is that what you're drawing on? Yeah. That, that that would be the most immediate connection, I think, in the context. And would, again, link to John 7 that you were talking about, where it's uh, the water welling up from within them uh, that's going to be a uh, it's going to be life to others. Now, it's the initial image, if this is representing uh, the six disciples, is that they're going to well up with the wine of the kingdom, the wine of joy. And that theme of giving water is one that pervades the whole of John's gospel. We have it in the pouring out of the water from these stone um, water pots. We see it in the promise of living water to the woman of Samaria. We see it in the um, statement of Jesus on that last great day of the feast in chapter 7. Out of his heart will flow living water. The description of Christ himself on the cross out of his side flowing blood and water. And then in chapter 21 with the disciples catching many fish, which brings our mind back to the water that has flown out and gone out of the temple in chapter 47 of Ezekiel and the connection between the number 153 and the places mentioned there and the fishing and catching many fish by the waters of the bitter places made sweet. And all of that is against the backdrop of the eschatological promise in the Old Testament that there will be water flowing out of Jerusalem and its temple to give life to the world and John's presenting that as fulfilled in Christ who is the true temple as we see in later on in chapter 2 
And then one detail that um, I found interesting, looking through the story of the Exodus, there's a close connection, if you look in the details of the stories, of Miriam with the water events and the provision of water in the wilderness. And I wonder whether John is considering the close association between Mary and the provision of water from these new, this new rock, as it were, um, whether he's playing upon those themes. That was something that was mentioned by Drew Knowles, who was one of our students at a recent Theopolis Junior Fellows course. Yeah, so John is operating on Tertullian's principle uh, in his treatise on baptism. Tertullian says, Nunquam sine aqua Christus, uh, Christ is never without water. <laughs> the, uh, the six stone jars, the number six obviously is a number that longs to be completed by seven and surely stands for the old world, the old um, Jewish system, which is uh, uh, insufficient uh, and needs to be transformed by the work of Jesus. The, I, I, would, I would just call attention also to one, I think, mistake here that is made, particularly in contemporary preaching on this passage that I've heard. And it's a mistake that um, a lot of evangelicals make when they deal with these kinds of things. So if we say that the six stone water jars refer to the Jewish rites, the rituals of purification, and how Jesus um, comes to do more and pretty much do those, do away with those and bring his own life and, and system, uh, religious system into place, you'll get this idea often that, so, you know, we too have uh, created a world of these ritual vessels that are traditional, like the ones described in Canaan. And, um, and we think that if we are uh, conversant and, and uh, observant about these religious habits, that somehow we can um, find peace with God. And then what, then what happens is there's this critique of all ritual, all rites, and this idea somehow that what Jesus is saying here is that we have an immediacy and an intimacy with Jesus that is impeded by ritual forms, um, and even our old traditional forms can impede our intimacy with Jesus and not bring us true life. I don't think that's a good move in terms of the significance and application of a passage like this. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, can you explain your objection to it? Uh, what, what, how would you, from within the passage, how would you try to rebut that reading? Well, from within the passage, people are in fact drinking the wine. <laughs> They're actually uh, drinking freely of the wine. So it's not as if Jesus has just stopped the uh, the use of ritual rites altogether. He's just added a different one. And from within, of course, the context of the New Testament, you see all sorts of new rituals and rites um, that are not the old ones, but they're, they're certainly uh, embodied rituals that Christians uh, engage in. I don't know, maybe you guys can do better than that, but that's, no. that's my... I think that, I mean, that kind of goes, goes back to the discussion we were having in the last episode about Paul and the law and how he thinks about the law. And it's a, there's a, you said it's an unfinished, there's a um, temp temporary character to it. It doesn't mean that it's, um, that the, the rights, that rights themselves are dispensed with, but the old rights, the childish rights are surpassed by the coming of this, this better thing. Instead of 
water cleansing the flesh, now we have the wine of the new covenant, which is ultimately mm. Jesus' own blood. So we've been, we've been talking about the various dimensions of the passage, but the point of this whole series is to talk about the signs in John's gospel. And this is, as we've said, the first time that John uses that term and applies it to an act of Jesus. This is the beginning of his signs. So I think this is kind of summarizing what we've already said, but how, how is this um, event a sign of Jesus? Are you asking, what is the glory manifested here in this sign? Well, that would be one way to ask the question, yeah. Because at the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, the implication is that he's manifesting his glory through the signs. Right. Yeah. yeah, through the sign. And we can think about, we've already talked about um, most of what we're getting at, I think. You know, the, the coming of the new covenant, uh, the coming, the fulfillment of all the uh, passages you cited, Jeff, about the beginning of a wine feast, the joy of the new covenant, the surpassing of the covenant of purification that's represented by the water. I think part of it would be, uh, this is Jim's argument, part of it would be the fact that Jesus steps aside and glorifies or allows the, the bridegroom to take the glory. So part of Jesus' glory is to, to glorify the bridegroom. So uh, that, that would be a, an aspect of the sign. Uh, Peter, let me ask you a question. This is something that relates to this. So Jesus says in verse 10 that everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. There seems to be this first wine and then second wine. Uh, and if I recall, I got it in my margin here, it, perhaps it's Gage who connects this with Revelation 17 and 19 um, with uh, a second more, uh, you know, the first wine is the gospel good news in the gospel stories. But the second wine is this um, treading the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. It's the, it's the harvest in 17 uh, and referred again in 19. Do you, do you, is that something you've talked about in your commentary? I didn't look. Not that I recall. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, that, that would uh, fit with, fit with ways I, I'm, I've read Revelation and tried to, I mean, the, the, the second wine in that case you're talking about is the wine of martyrdom, right? Yes. The, the, the blood of the martyrs that's, that's uh, spilled out. I think that connects with a number of things that we've been discussing. Uh, Alistair's reference to John 7 and the water flowing from uh, the inner parts. Uh, the martyrs are giving, they're giving life to the world by shedding their own life's blood. Um, and that is the better wine that's revealed in the New Covenant. They're doing that in union with Jesus who sheds his own blood as the better wine. Uh, and in union with him, they're able to shed their blood for the life of the world. So I think it would fit with the, with the, uh, the way that the wine imagery is working in the latter part of Revelation. Yeah. The statement of the master of the feast invites us to reflect upon what's just taken place. He's puzzled by the fact that the bridegroom would act in the way that he seemingly has. And so his statement, which is recorded, which, I mean, why is that statement recorded? It wouldn't seem to be necessary if it were just describing the miracle. Rather, there's something about that statement that invites the reader to reflect upon what it means that Christ is the one who brings the good wine last 
Um, it's not just that Christ has created good wine. There's something about the ordering of that that um, may be significant. Yeah, I mean, this this is, um, I think I probably talk about this passage a little bit in uh, my book, Deep Comedy, because I think this is a, it's reflecting that reorientation of, of time that we have uh, in the Bible generally, but particularly when we get to the New Testament. We have ancient conceptions that, um, and some readings of the Bible even, that see the past as the golden age from which we've fallen, the unrecoverable past, uh, and everything is kind of oriented uh, backwards in time, this nostalgia and longing for a return. And sometimes that works within, in a semi-cyclical kind of way. We, we do have a hope of return, but then you're back to a golden age, but that golden age is soon tarnished. And all of that's uh, inverted in the Bible, where the future is where the, the, the best things come. The old, was, the old was glorious, but the second exodus is better. Forget the former things. Uh, look for what that's ahead. The, the first Adam failed. The last Adam is, is better. The first garden is not as glorious as the last garden city. So you have that reorientation of time that uh, is reflected in that. And I think that you know, the surprise, I think, maybe uh, is the surprise of, an ancient, of the ancient mentality that the, the good wine should come first. Uh, and Jesus is uh, the last Adam, and so he brings the good wine last. In the following chapter, we have John the Baptist baptizing and debates about purification um, and the fact that he's baptizing um, near Salem where there is a lot of water. The way that he describes himself in that context is as the friend of the bridegroom. So you have the purification elements, lots of water. You have the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom, those elements would recall chapter 2 and the description of the wedding feast. How can the purification um, water pots or the water pots with the water for purification maybe be understood in the light of John's baptism and what the bridegroom is going to bring as a replacement for yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, um, one question that I've puzzled over inconclusively is what the water pots for purification are doing at a wedding. Are we to assume that the wedding is considered some kind of uh, sacred? Pl- it's in a sacred place. It is. Is it in a? Is it in a uh, synagogue? Are they, um, in some sense, entering the presence of God? Uh, why would they? Why would they need purification for a wedding? But I think that it makes better sense to me if you think about it in the in the context of what you just asked, Alistair. That uh, we're being invited into the wedding feast of Jesus. To share in his wine, but in order to come into that, uh, we need to be cleaned up. Uh, John is preparing for the bridegroom. He's announcing the bridegroom. He's the friend of the bridegroom, but he's preparing people so that they can share in that feast. So I don't know how to answer the question about what, in the literal event, what the why why would there be purification? I think it t- kind of typologically or sacramentally, it makes more sense that John is. Um, the prep- obviously the preparation for the coming king and the coming bridegroom. And so he's preparing a clean people who can enter into the feast. There's also the reference in chapter 1 and chapter 3 to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So maybe the wine is representing the gift of the Holy Spirit as the water represents in chapter 4 and chapter 7. And the blood and water that flows from Christ's side maybe is connected to this too. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.